Welcome to the Sunday evening service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where the Bible is opened and explained, Christians are encouraged, and Christ is lifted up. Thank you for joining us, and may your hearts be blessed as God's Word is taught. And now, enjoy this message from Bible Baptist Church. Well, good evening. If you'd like to take your Bible tonight and turn to James chapter 1, James chapter 1 is where we're going to be this evening, and um, I appreciate Pastor Regeer letting me have an opportunity to bring the word to you this, uh, this evening, this um, fine Sunday night with this beautiful weather. It's finally starting to feel like fall out there. And if you, uh, in your mind, you heard James chapter 1, you thought, oh, he must be uh, going to talk about trials. Well, I, I am. And uh, I actually didn't say anything to Andrew before he planned the song service. Uh, we did, you know, Great is Thy Faithfulness and Lord, I Need You, and some great songs to go along with the message tonight um, by chance, right? It just happened that way. But it's really um, special to see how God works all of those kinds of things together um, in his perfect plan. James chapter 1, and we're going to just read through the entire chapter for context, but then um, we'll be in James 1, verses 1 through probably uh, 12 this evening, and uh, we'll try to get, um, get at least that far. So James uh, chapter 1, I'm going to read without uh, comment just through the passage, and then we'll go back and make a few observations. James 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every gift, and every perfect gift, every good gift, and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat us, he begat us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, Slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. 
But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in the glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seems to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And may God bless the reading of his word. Let's go ahead and open our service in prayer, and then we'll get started here tonight in verse 1. Father God, we thank you so much for this letter that you've given um, by divine inspiration from the pen of James. We're thankful uh, that your word is um, unchanging, that it is a rock upon which we can build our life, that we can find stability in a world that is tossed about by so many uh, conflicts, so many struggles and trials and difficulties. Father, I pray that you'd be with each one of us here tonight, and as we even read uh, just a a minute ago, Lord, that you would help us to be um, hearers of the word, yes, but doers of the word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever had a pet bird. Anybody had a bird as a pet? Um, What kind of bird did you have, ma'am? A parakeet. What kind of bird did you have? What was that? A dove? I've never heard, I've never heard that. Um, so when I was little, we had, a, I guess it was called a cocktail. And it, we loved this bird. You could come in, um, and when you walked in, he would kind of put his head around the corner, and um, he would whistle the first uh, half of a song. Like, he had, he had learned the song. And so, like, whenever he was happy, he'd just sit in there and whistle his song over and over and over again. And if you walked in the room, he would whistle his song. And um, you could reach up there, and, and you could pet him, you know, his little head would sit right in your hand, and you could pet him behind the ears, and he just loved that, and he'd like turn his head. And the day that, that Mr. Feathers died was very tragic. I mean, it was, it was very sad in the Flurry household. And, um, you know, I'm the oldest of 10 kids, so that's a lot of kids to be sad about the bird that died. And so the sorrow was just multiplied, <laughs> you know, sorrow upon sorrow. Well, I read a story about Chippy the parakeet. Someone said they had a parakeet. Chippy the parakeet never saw it coming. One second, he was peacefully perched in his cage, and the next, he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. The problems began when Chippy's owner decided to clean his cage with a vacuum cleaner. She removed the attachment from the end of the hose, and she stuck it into the cage, but but then the phone rang, and she turned to pick it up. She barely said hello when Chippy got sucked up inside. The bird owner gasped and put down the phone, turned off the vacuum, and opened the bag. There was Chippy. Still alive, but stunned. Since the bird was covered with dust and soot, grass and crackers, she grabbed him and raced to the bathroom, turning on the faucet, and she held Chippy underneath the running water. Then, realizing that Chippy was now soaked and shivering, she did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She reached for the hairdryer and blasted him with, with hot air. Poor Chippy nev- never knew what hit him. A few days after the trauma, a reporter who had initially written about this event, I'm not sure how this made the news, but apparently it did, contacted Chippy's owner to see how the bird was recovering. Well, she replied, Chippy doesn't seem much anymore. 
He just sits there and stares. Well, it's not hard to see why. Sucked in, washed up, and blown over. That's enough to steal the song from the stoutest heart. And perhaps tonight you're feeling a little bit uh, sucked in, washed up, and blown over. Perhaps you've been through the trials of life here recently. And if you haven't, you will soon. Um, And as we see in this passage tonight, we're going to see that from the Apostle James, that um, this is something that is common to the human experience, but it's more than that, it's common to the Christian experience. So James chapter 1, verse 1, and the first thing we see here in verse 1 is is just a greeting. And there's not a whole lot of, um, of greeting here. It's just one verse. Um, it says, James, so he identifies the writer, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. And the first thing that we see there is that the book is written by James. Um, there were a couple different uh, options as to who that could be. It could be James the disciple, or it could be James the brother of Jesus. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that tonight. I believe it would be James the brother of Jesus that wrote this book. I think that's the consensus. Um, but so James wrote the book, and he identifies himself not as, if we're going to go with my assumption that it's the brother of Jesus, he doesn't say, James the brother of Jesus, the servant of God. He just says, a servant of God. And the word there for servant would be the Greek word doulos, which is slave. He is a slave of God. This is his identity. His identity is not that, um, that he was um, Christ's brother uh, in the flesh here on earth. It's that he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Uh, in general, this word, this would be... Um, the word dispersion. This is referring to, to Jews who were living outside of the land of Palestine. Um, it could be translated here, uh, scattered, or um, um, it could be dispersion. And it's, it's kind of like the idea of seed that is scattered by a farmer's hand. In fact, the, the scattering of um, these Jewish believers was tantamount to the seeds of the gospel going out. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we had, um, I believe, Laverne Waugh. I don't know if I'm saying her last name right. We had her um, video play here. She was here a few weeks before that, and it was really neat to hear her in person and to meet her. But then we, we watched this video for a couple Sunday nights, and she talked about how when they were kicked off, basically they were threatened with in an inch of their lives if they didn't leave the land that rightfully belonged to them. Um, and let, they had to leave the buildings, the compound that they had, and they had to go out into the countryside. And she said, you know, um, that was, we thought it was terrible. We thought this was the end of everything. We, we had built this, we had carefully built this, this little, um, you know, community of believers. But looking back, she said, we can see how God was uh, using that where he scattered us out into the country to um, spread the gospel across the country there uh, in Africa. And um, this is what was happening here in the first century. The, the Jews who were following Jesus kind of had double trouble because not only um, were they Jews. See, Claudius, the Roman emperor, was driving the Jews into exile just because they were Jews. He said, um, you have to leave Rome, you have to, you, you have to leave and, and go out, but also because they were Christians. Um, they were 
they were no strangers to trouble. And to put this into perspective, I mean, think about um, if tonight you went to walk out of the doors of this church and you got one of those emergency notifications on your phone and it said, um, a new law has been passed and gone into uh, action today and uh, any Christian living in Henry County has to get out. They have till midnight tonight. They have to be out of the county under penalty of death. You have that much time to leave. And that's the kind of experience that some of these Jews, some of these Christians had, um, had just been going through as James is writing them this letter. So when you read the words to, to the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad, behind those words are just volumes of trouble and stress and suffering. And so James jumps right in here. He basically says, hey, I'm James and I'm writing to you. Um, and, and from the very beginning, um, James is, is just going to hit this head on. So verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. And in this one verse, we have pretty much everything I want to look at tonight. Um, in, in this verse and, and this, um, in this passage we're going to look at through verse 12. He says, Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. So number one, the first truth about trouble we're going to look at tonight is that trouble, trials in the life of the believer are unavoidable. You cannot get away from trials in your life. It's impossible. And um, to, to reinforce this, look at verse 2. It says, count it all joy when... He doesn't say, count it all joy if you fall into trials. He says, when you fall into trials. There's um, a lot of people who would say if you have enough faith or um, if you believe you know, enough, if, if you're a Christian, somehow you're not going to experience um, trials in your life. You're going to live your best life now and you're just going to have a great, you know, smooth life with no issues. And that's just simply not the case. Uh, It would make a lot more sense to us if he'd said, count it all joy when you escape various trials, right? It would would, uh, better connect this idea of being joyful if you could escape the trials. Well, Jesus said something radically different. Um, He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. Matthew 6, 34, he talks about how every day is going to have its share of trouble. Uh, Paul says in Acts 14.22 that um, we will all go through much tribulation to enter into, king, into the kingdom of God. So in other words, the Christian experience is, is notably distinctive not by the absence of trials, but by the presence of trials. You will experience trials. So we are not his sheltered people, Warren Wearsby wrote. We are his scattered people. But the second truth about trials that we'll see tonight is um, that these trials are not only unavoidable, but they're unlimited. Now, this doesn't sound very encouraging, right? So first of all, we can't get away from them. Second of all, they just keep coming. They're unlimited. Well, look again there in verse uh, 2, knowing this, that the trying, or verse 2, my brother counted all joy when you fall into diverse trials into um, various trials could be another interpretation there. The Greek word for this idea is like um, polka dotted, like trials of all types, of all um, colors, of all um, experiences. 
So this trouble that we're going to experience is as varied as the colors of the rainbow. Um, he says it's unavoidable. He says it's unlimited. You're going to have these trials. And, and th- this would be um, trials of health, trials of relationships, um, trials in your family, trials related to your, your job, your employment, um, trials um, related to your social standing in society, maybe um, related to the past that you've left behind when you became a Christian. Um, Paul talks about how such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified by the blood of Christ. And, but there's still that past that's there, and it's still um, sometimes affecting your life even today. And so um, we are going to experience trials, and we're going to experience all kinds of trials. But the third truth that we have packed into this one verse is that trials are, yes, um, unlimited Yes, um, or yes, unavoidable. Yes, unlimited. But they're also unexpected. Um, It says, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. And James here um, uses this phrase, when you fall into. It's a word that's only used twice more in the entire New Testament. Once in Acts 27, where the ship that was carrying the Apostle Paul unexpectedly encounters a sandbar, and it starts to break apart. It fell into (laughs) the sandbar, as it were. And the only other place is in Luke 10, where the Lord is telling the parable of the man who is traveling to Jericho, and he fell among the thieves. So he's going down the road, he's minding his own business, and he fell among the thieves. So this is suddenly, and without warning, um, this man is surrounded by trouble, and there's no way to escape. This is the idea of trials here in James 1. In fact, it's interesting that the word translated here, uh, trials, I read, is um, linked, it's, it's linked to the Greek word parates, which is, means attacker. And if we take that particular word and we transliterate it, it's our word pirate, right? Um, this weekend, my family and I were able to go up to Greenville, South Carolina, and um, my son Nathan was able to sing with the Patch the Pirate crew on stage at Rodehaver Auditorium. And they just had this massive program, and they brought in all the villains that had ever been, you know, a part of Patch the Pirate, and they sang songs. And I think that program went almost an hour and a half, I mean, for, like, elementary kids. And all the kids are just, like, you know, looking. And there's a big dinosaur dragon they brought in at the end. Well, this word, this idea here is is pirates, the pirates, the trials are, are like attackers that suddenly appear. So you're just sailing along, minding your own business um, on the sea of life. Pick whatever ship you want. You've got a nice yacht or you've got you know, a big cruise ship or whatever. You're, you're floating along. And all of a sudden there's a pirate ship there. And they're waving the Jolly Roger. And, and they board your ship. And before you know it, there's pirates you know, on board your ship attacking you. And that's the idea here. You are, here you are, you're, you're unarmed, you're unprepared, you're unsuspecting. Maybe you were just out um, suntanning on the deck of your, your ship of life. And all of a sudden, there's the trials of life boarding your ship, the pirates of tribulation. Well, surely James will tell us how to get away, right? Surely he's going to tell us how to sail off into the sunset without being affected by these trials. Um, Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse, into diverse temptations. So maybe we think, well, 
James is supposed to say that. Um, I mean, he's an apostle. After all, he's the brother of Jesus. It was going to be written in the Bible. Of course, he's going to say, count it all joy. Uh, it's just, you know, it's just unattainable. It was just something for, like, really spiritual people. Well, no, we didn't uh, misunderstand James here. He didn't say that we're going to enjoy our trials. He didn't say that we should come out the other side and say, wow, wasn't that a great trial? I really enjoyed that. That was really good. No, he isn't saying that you walk out of the hospital room and, and just smile and just be happy because you've come through a trial. He says, count it all joy. The, the word there for count it all joy, some translations will say consider it all joy. It's a financial term um, that means to reckon or to evaluate. Um, we have some folks in our church who are into um, taxes and into finance, and you know they, they take you know sheets and pages of data and they um, they look at all of this to get a big picture of the financial um, situation of an institution or of a person that they're working with as they're going through this paperwork. So um, this idea would be that the sum total of the trial. Is, is you're evaluating, this, this evaluation, the way you total up life, your values as a Christian are radically different now that you're a believer, now that you're living for God's glory. So the believer understands that trials will have value. James will show us next that trials shape us into the character of God. So it's no wonder that um, the devil wants to defeat us with trials, the book of Job, the entire book, is about the devil trying to defeat a Christian with trials. While God is using these trials to develop the believer. Um, probably the best example, uh, other than maybe Job, would be Joseph. So um, his brother sold him into slavery. He lost his youth. He was separated from his family. He grew up in a strange land. Um, he was sold as a slave to this man who, who finally showed him some mercy and gave him a better job managing his house. But then his boss's wife accuses him of all kinds of gross immorality. He's sent to prison, though he's innocent. He interpreted the dream of this cupbearer, and then the cupbearer got out of prison and promptly forgot him. Joseph said, don't, don't forget me when you got out of prison. Remember me. As soon as he got out of prison, totally forgot him. It's like me anytime I leave the house to go on a long trip. Whatever the last thing I needed to grab, I forgot it, right? Well... Um, Joseph, by every stretch of the imagination, could have been consumed by cynicism, by bitterness towards these people, towards God, uh, with just angry at life. He, he hadn't gotten a fair shake. He'd been surrounded by trouble for years and years, and yet he emerges from the shadow of prison with grace and balance and faith, and everybody loves this guy. He's... Um, He's better for having come through this trial. Why? Because he came to believe that God had orchestrated everything according to his plan, which meant years of suffering for Joseph. Years and years of suffering. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I go through suffering, I'm like, let's get this over with as fast as we can. You know, we, we don't want to prolong this. Let's get it over with. Well, Joseph was in prison for years. Uh, there's something, someone wrote, you, you can't choose your crosses in life, 
but you can choose your responses. We can't, as Christians, choose what trials God will have us go through, but we can choose our response to those trials. And that's not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of idea, but we can, through um, what we rely on, whether we're relying on God, whether we're relying on ourselves, we can choose our response to trials. So, Number one, uh, trials are unavoidable. Number two, trials are unlimited. But number three, um, trials are unexpected. And now James goes on to give us uh, some answers here. So he says in verse three, um, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. The word for um, patience there, for endurance, this is a compound word that means to stay under, the ability to stay under the pressure. James says, I want to know that when your faith is, I want you to know that when your faith is stretched and challenged, the end result is endurance. Like lungs that have developed through exercise, you're able to stay underwater longer. You're able to run longer because you have practiced to run. Your practical faith that lives out in public has staying power. But notice in verse 4, James says, Let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So this completed end result... Um, is this endurance, this staying under ability. In other words, don't short-circuit the work of God in your life by trying to escape the trial. Let endurance be developed. This is, um, for all you English teachers, an imperative in the Greek language that you could put an explanation point after the phrase, let endurance have its perfect result. And everyone immediately says, there's no use trying I'm far from perfect, right? You read that and it's like, um, let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And we all think, well, I can't be perfect. It'll, it's unattainable. Um, I'm a sinner and I know that. And that's true, but this word translated perfect refers to having uh, an undivided relationship with Christ. Stephen Davies says, a pure relationship with him with undivided affections. You are his slave, remember, verse 1. Trials have this way of doing that. In the midst of suffering, everything the world clamors for suddenly becomes nonsense. The Apostle Paul called it garbage, as it were. All of our clinging to the world, all of our clinging to self, all of our clinging to temporal things begins to lose its grip in our lives and our lives focus to Christ and to his sufficiency while we're going through these struggles. So trials in the life of the believer are not electives in God's school of spiritual maturity. They are required courses, as it were. When I was a student at Bob Jones University, there were electives, and you could choose, you know, and you could look through a list, and you'd be like, well, I'm kind of interested in that, or I, I know that I need to develop in that area, so I'm going to take that class. And then there's required courses, like Taylor had to take math, because Taylor's horrible at math, so he had to take remedial, remedial math, you know. Well, you have required courses uh, for your major as it were, in school. If you're going to be a business major, you're going to have business classes. If you go to a liberal arts university, you're going to have to take courses in the liberal arts. You're going to have required courses. In the Christian life, you're going to have the required courses of trials. God's 
hand in your life developing you to keep you um, and to, to, um, to grow you. <clears throat> so, um, a problem we have here as Christians is, is that um, we, have to be, we have to grow, we have to develop, and we need help growing up and developing. So I have four children, um, and the youngest is one. And right now, we are going through, like you would think by the time you get to number four, you've probably got most things kind of figured out, you know. But every child is different. Every single one is different. And every single one, um, like, teaches you again that you don't know how to be a parent. So, so like you kind of start back over and you talk to other people and you like try to figure out things that work with each kid. And so right now we're going through this time where Peter does not want to sleep at night. And I think he, he doesn't want to miss anything. Like I think he thinks the world just keeps going on and there's all kinds of cool stuff to do. And so he wants to stay up and just experience it all and he never wants to sleep. But then in addition to not wanting to sleep, uh, he doesn't want to sleep in his room. And so you have to find ways to um, help your children th- through this time. You know, uh, pretty much every child is going to go through this in one way or another. Some babies, it's like no problem. They go in their room and they sleep and, you know, lucky you. But some, that doesn't work that way. So a sign of physical and mental maturity is this ability for your child to go to sleep when they're alone. A sign of spiritual maturity is the wisdom to know how to rest even when God seems absent. So James says in verse 5, we haven't gotten there yet, verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that he <clears throat> that giveth, liber- giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given to him. Um, so James says, if you need help, if you need wisdom to know how to handle trials, you need to ask of God. There's some really interesting things in this verse here. So um, this first phrase here, if any of you lack wisdom. And the assumption is all of us do. All of us lack wisdom. Let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given to him. And uh, it's really interesting here. So God gives to all, note this, generously, without reproach, that is without insult. God doesn't say, oh, it's you again. You're coming back to me again, asking for wisdom. Like, didn't you get enough last time? He abradeth not, it says. He never, he never says, how could you come back again? Like, how can you not take care of this yourself? Um, and he promises that he will give us this wisdom. Wisdom is knowing how to correctly use what you have learned. It's how to take knowledge that you have and apply that knowledge. Mankind, our Kenton Hughes says, has learned enough knowledge to know how to travel faster than the speed of sound. Wisdom knows that mankind, in general, is traveling faster and faster in the wrong direction. So isn't it interesting that James tells us to ask God for wisdom? Why not for deliverance or strength or grace to get through these trials? In his commentary on James, Warren Wiersbe tells of a secretary in his church who was going through a lot of struggles in her life. Her husband had lost his sight, and then um, she had a minor stroke, and then the husband was ill and had to go into the hospital, and everyone was expecting he was probably going to pass away. 
Wiersbe wrote, I saw her in church one Sunday and assured her that I was praying for her. She said, Pastor, what exactly are you asking God to do? Her question startled Pastor Wiersbe, who responded, Well, I'm asking God to help you and strengthen you. She said, I appreciate that, Pastor, but I, what I want you to pray about one more thing, please. Pray that I'll have the wisdom not to waste all of this suffering. Wiersbe wrote, she knew the meaning of James 1.5, asking God for wisdom so that her suffering would produce endurance and not be wasted. So James now moves into a warning in verse 6, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. To this casual reader, this um, idea that the, the average Christian might have, well, this, this rules me out. I need wisdom, but I doubt God will give it to me. Like deep in my heart, I'm sure that I, I don't really like, believe that God's going to reach down and give me the wisdom that I need for my trials. And, and this is kind of an unfortunate um, interpretation of this. So James is actually describing a wicked man the same way Isaiah described one as being like the troubled sea. The word here for double-minded would be, um, trans- could be translated like two-souled, um, a conflicted person, uh, a person with uh, two hearts. He's referring to someone who is constantly changing allegiances, someone who comes to church on Sunday and does the Christian thing and then goes out the door and does the secular world for the rest of the week before coming back to church on Sunday. One author called him a walking civil war in which trust and distrust of God wage a continual battle against each other. So James isn't referring to somebody with honest doubts um, or perhaps this misdirected sense of humility that assumes God has more important things to do than answer their prayer. He's describing a person who says he wants God's direction in life, but in reality, he's keeping all his options open. And he says no one will receive wisdom from God until their only option is obedient submission to God. So verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Um, It carries this idea of never committing in life. He inclines toward God one day and towards the world the next. Paul uses the same word in uh, 1 Corinthians 14.33 to describe disorder. So ask in faith, which means you've made up your mind that you want the wisdom of God and that you will ultimately obey the will of God. It's submitting, it's coming under God's will. Um, And then James uses an illustration here, verses 9 through 11. I used to wonder kind of how this was thrown in here, but 9 through 11, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. So the poor believer and the rich believer here, they they both, they realize that the ground is level in suffering. Both are given a new status in Christ and it's Christ they are to trust. The poor man needs to consider his high position as a prince of God, even when life tells him he's anything but a member of the family of God. And the rich man needs to remember that his trust can't be in his wealth, 
because it can wither and pass away as quickly as a flower losing its petal in the scorching desert wind. But then there's the promise in verse 12. Look down at verse 12. We'll wrap up with this tonight. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. This is the truly happy man. And it's kind of uh, almost like Jesus' um, beatitudes here. James kind of uh, sounds like his half-brother Jesus, maybe. He says, blessed is the man that endureth temptation. This isn't like a maybe, like he, he might be blessed. This is for sure. He endures temptation. He will be blessed. He's not implying that you can earn eternal life by enduring suffering, but he is saying that the believer can earn a crown, unique rewards for having suffered with joy. We can't choose our crosses, but we can choose our responses. My boys uh, love to go to Cracker Barrel, and we finally gotten past the point where they think that every time they have to go to Cracker Barrel, they have to buy a new toy because we just pretty much say, you know, as soon as we walk up, we are not buying any toys. Don't ask. You can look at them, but we're not buying any of them. So then we'll go sit down. Well, we don't get that far. When we walk up to the Cracker Barrel, the first thing the boys want to do is run up to the porch and sit on a rocking chair and play checkers. Nathan has developed a love for checkers, and so he's excited about it, so Ethan's excited about it, and Ethan barely knows how to play, but they're having a blast. So they run up there, and they're playing checkers, and they're jumping each other, and uh, we went to the Anchorage Christian Camp a couple weeks ago during fall break, a week ago during fall break, and um, I was teaching Nathan how to play chess. They have like these life-size, not life-size, but these large chess figures out on an outdoor board, and um, so at first it was a little challenging because, like, you have chess and it looks like a checkerboard. So you're, like, trying to move the queen. You know, it's like it doesn't work that way. But um, they love to play checkers. And checkers, if you've ever played that with your grandpa, like, it's the fastest way to get embarrassed is to play checkers with your grandpa. I guarantee it. Like, if you haven't done that, go, out, go home, ask grandpa, play checkers with me. Well, Howard Hendricks once uh, had the opportunity to play his town's champion checkers player. He was a young fellow at the time and confident that he could take on the old veteran. He was given the first move and decided to set the pace. After a few moves, his opponent put a piece in the line of fire and said, jump me. Hendricks did so, scooping the piece triumphantly off the board. He thought that he had the game in the bag when his opponent put another piece in jeopardy and said, you'll have to jump me again. Hendricks happily took that piece as well. And then it happened. The old man picked up one of the checkers and jump, 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 jump. His checker hopped down the board, scooping up four of Hendrick's checkers with relentless precision. He announced, crown me. After that, young Hendrix didn't have a chance as piece after piece was pounced on until he had lost them all. Dr. Hendrix made the point, no good checker player minds losing an occasional piece. He can lose it with joy, as it were as long as he knows that he's heading for the crown. So ladies and gentlemen, we can't choose our crosses, but we can choose our responses. And what better way to encourage us to that end, um, us all, at the end of this discussion than James effectively to say, one day your crosses will be exchanged 
for a crown. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. And that is a crown of eternal reward, eternal significance. So the choices that we make today as we walk down the road of life, as we navigate the trials of life, will result in if we are bearing up under these trials, if we're enduring under these trials, an eternal reward. When my grandma was um, very ill and on um, and in her last days, uh, I was a freshman at college, and my, my mom used to have to go and take her um, to dialysis a couple times, you know, a week, and um, we would go over there, and they lived about an hour away, and we would drive over there two or three times a week, um, and we would um, clean their house, and we would do their laundry, and Grandpa wasn't doing well at the same time. But I remember my grandma, she was not, um, you know, like a towering spiritual figure, but she professed faith in Jesus, and she bore up under those trials, and she told my mom, she said, none of us know what we're going to have to go through before we die. None of us know what we're going to have to go through before we die. And in our world today, the things that we're facing today, um, that applies more than just you know, physical discomfort from disease and from age. Um, there's no telling what we'll have to face before we die. But are our eyes on this eternal reward that Christ offers? Are we going to choose to allow him to grow and develop us through the trials? And are we going to choose to endure under those trials through the strength that God provides. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you.